This is the Personal Profitability Podcast with Eric Rosenberg. Hey there, profiteers. Welcome to episode number 70 of the Personal Profitability Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Rosenberg. And today I want to talk to you about a fun entrepreneurial topic, getting back to making money today. And this topic is how to find opportunities to start a new business or start a new side hustle. So if you've been to the side hustle post at personalprofitability.com slash side dash hustle, you will find 137 ideas to start your first side hustle. But you know, those are just my ideas. There are so many ideas out there. There's an unlimited number of ideas out there. And today's guest, who we'll talk about in just a moment, spotted a very unique idea and a hole in the market and created a new business to meet that need. And that's really what starting any side hustle or entrepreneurial project is all about. It's about fixing a need that someone else has and they're willing to pay to have fixed. So I want to tell you the story something we've mentioned, I believe once in the past, about the one of the first side hustles I ever started. And that was a bracelet business. So if you go way back in history, when I was in middle school, if that ages me, you can guess my age. I'm 32. I don't care if you know. So when I was in middle school, those what would Jesus do bracelets, those little cloth bracelets that said WWJD were super popular. A ton of my friends wore them, but I'm Jewish. So I was never going to wear a what would Jesus do bracelet. You know, I'm cool that the you know, everyone has their own beliefs and I respect that. But, you know, I personally was not all that interested in what Jesus would do. But I am always looking for a new business idea. And I, I wasn't even sure that I didn't know that I had this entrepreneur gene yet at that point in my life. But I thought, you know, never eat yellow snow. That was the idea I came up with. I was living in Denver. I was a snowboarder. I thought with the ski and snowboard culture here, what a hilarious idea. And with my you know, 13 year old maturity level, never eat yellow snow seemed like the best way to go. But I didn't have the money to start a new business then. And I wasn't going to go to my parents and say, Hey, give me a few hundred bucks. I didn't even know how I would start this business. But I did end up, you know, got a, getting a job when I was 16. And I worked in the summer through college. So by the time I was in college, I did have a few hundred bucks that I could maybe invest in something. So I put this money in and started never eat yellow snow bracelets. I got a, a couple bags of them, which are actually, for the most part, still sitting in my office today, over a decade later, uh, it wasn't a hugely successful business. But it was me being creative, seeing an idea seeing there was something positive popular going on. And I missed the timing of it by probably five years. That was the biggest reason it hardly broke even. But you know, it was an idea. It got my brain turning on what's possible, something unique, something out of the box. And our guest today uh, had a similar background. He started with a Hollywood-focused business in Buffalo 8 Productions. That's a film company and management company that helps create Hollywood movies. But when he was working on this company that he'd started on his own, so he was already an entrepreneur, he saw that there was a gap in the market between the funding of Hollywood pictures and the people who make them. So he created a business called Bondit Media Capital to fill in the gaps. So I'm not going to go too far into the details of what Bondit does. We'll let Matthew Helderman tell you himself. And that interview will start in just one minute after this. 
It used to be that when I wanted to review all of my personal finances, I had to log into websites from different banks, investment companies, lenders, credit card companies, all sorts of financial institutions to see a complete picture of my finances. But that's not a problem anymore thanks to Personal Capital. With Personal Capital, I can log in and in one handy dashboard, I can view all of my banks, credit cards, investments, and every other account in one place. Plus, it gives me insights into how I earn money and how I spend each month so I can optimize my income and cash flows to best suit the needs of my family. But there's more. There's some great free tools like the 401k and mutual fund analysis tool that I use to save $300 every year on mutual fund fees. And that's money back in my pocket. Now, the best part is most of these tools are totally free. You can sign up for personal capital with no charge and only pay if you decide you want to work with a professional financial advisor to help manage your money. But if you want to do it yourself, you can sign up for free and use all of these great tools. To get started, head to personalprofitability.com slash personal capital. That's personalprofitability.com slash personal capital. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am excited to feature our next guest who is on the line with us, Matthew Helderman, and he has a very unique and interesting journey through investments and entrepreneurship, but I won't ruin it by taking his thunder away. So Matt, say hello and and welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. It's It's a pleasure to be here and a big fan of what you guys do. Please share with us, how did you come up with the idea of your current business model? So the, the, the sort of high level 30,000 foot view on the businesses we run, there's two companies and one ultimately led to the other. Now, Buffalo 8 is a film, television and commercial production company uh, um, that, that took five, six years to build. And during that time, we built a large library of content, about 40 or 50 feature films ranging from very low budget, quarter of a million dollars, all the way to a few million dollar budgets. And as that grew, we recognized that access to capital had largely changed in media, a sort of post-2008 crisis and how banks and, and, and the, the regulatory statutes had really changed made it really challenging for producers and content creators and creative teams to access capital. Simultaneously, what had ultimately happened is, you know, it's obviously no secret, uh, digital technology really revolutionized and really, really democratized you know, how easy it is to gain access to the necessary tools to create and release and distribute and monetize content, whether that's on YouTube or whether it's on things like Instagram or whether it's on emerging platforms like Black Pills. These emerging platforms made it very simple for someone to go raise a small amount of money and release a piece of content. What was challenging was always how do producers piece that capital together. And so, as I mentioned, Buffalo 8 led us to realize, okay, having a micro fund outside of Buffalo 8 would be interesting to be able to service all of these producer relationships we had, especially at a time where production was just at an all-time high. And an all-time high, I'll sort of give you a figure that 7,000 films, on other feature films, will be produced and released internationally in 2017. And that number is growing exponentially year over year, really because of technology. The funding mechanisms were not and have not gotten easier. And so we created a micro fund, uh, which is Bondit Media Capital, in late 2013, launched it officially January 2014 after raising some seed financing. And the business just really exploded. You know, that first year we did 50 to 60 transactions. They were all micro loans against a senior secured product within the, the film space exclusively. And fast forward to today, we've 
partially financed almost 300 feature films, ranging from very small, you know, quarter of a million dollar budgets, all the way to $30 million budgets and everything in between. And so it's, it's really expanded, as has the suite of services and opportunities that we're able to capitalize on under the larger media umbrella. So digital production companies, music businesses, live touring, we're now closing one of our largest sports transactions. So we've been now well situated to provide what we look at as frictionless capital to the entire media business. And uh, and it's really just grown and, and blown up. Oh, I love this. It's the perfect entrepreneur story. You saw a hole in the market. You saw, you know, thanks to technology and just changing conditions, this big opportunity where there were people trying to expand their businesses and needed a service that didn't exist. And you came in and created that service. To me, that's the American dream, you know, finding a problem and solving it and, and making a few bucks along the way. That's awesome. So what has it been like you know, raising capital and trying to bring in investments from outside people? as you've grown your business? Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly been really challenging. And uh, I'll, I'll give two, two narratives. The first is on the Buffalo 8 side as a production business. That business was from the earliest days always a bootstrapped entity. So in film and film production, you know, there's sort of moniker, what, what's the easiest way to make a million dollars in film? Start with two, right? It's, 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 it's a losing game for most investors because people are sort of trying to play box office odds or trying to create the next big breakout hit. But the way the business is structured is that that's, it's largely not as simple as you know, folks may want it to be from sort of an outside perspective. And so that business was always bootstraps until about year three when we raised venture debt from just a group of angel investors brought in some angel debt that helped us pour gas on that fire that, that was growing and the services aspect of that business was growing. We were never raising an equity fund to deploy into individual projects, which is how a lot of media companies operate. You know, again, we were raising really just on a corporate level to service the growth, the growth needs of the business. On the bonded side, the need for capital was obviously paramount importance. It's a financing company, and so we needed cash from day one to be able to lend out and, and fund into projects. We raised a very small amount of money, you know, sub half a million dollars, the first year of operations, just from a group of high net worth individuals. And we revolved that capital on short duration deals to prove out the thesis of the model. As it was proving itself out, we were able to build up some historical financial data. We were then able to go to larger groups of investors. At that point, it was still primarily individuals, uh, a few entertainment companies, so entertainment payroll companies, some entertainment accounting companies that understood the space and understood what we were trying to do and understood even the asset class as it is or in general. And those were sort of the first quote unquote non-family or non-family friends investors that came into the business. As that continued to grow, uh, obviously the, the demand for capital and the demand from our clients has always outpaced the cash that we have on our own balance sheet. And so we've always been piecing these deals together behind the scenes with participants and certainly learning from a high level, everything from how participation agreement structure works to how do you syndicate portions of these loans to how do you sell down deals that have been funded to free up liquidity and, and sort of liquidate the, the, the assets so that we could fund new transactions. And that was certainly a learning process. You know, we, had, we had never done that before. You know, over the past four or five years of running this business, we've pitched probably 500 investors. And that, that's everything from individuals to now what has expanded to we manage money for a few different hedge funds over the years. We've had syndication agreements with family offices and very, very high net worth individuals and money managers and traditional funds. 
lessons. So it, it has evolved. And I think what it really allowed us to do was create this phenomenal web of, of opportunities and, and people know and trust our brand and us as operators, which in entertainment especially is probably the biggest currency you can trade on is the reliability factor. And so it was always challenging. I mean, I think we heard no many, several hundred times before we heard yes in those early days. Where we are today, uh, we're, we're, we've been working the past year on a deal that closed a few months ago. We sold a, a large piece of the business to Accord Financial, you know, which is a public financial services company that's been around about 40 years back east and uh, I mean, here in the US as well as in Toronto, up in Canada. And they're a niche financing company that capitalize mid-market finance firms. And so they came in and bought a big piece of our business, providing let's just call it permanent capital solutions, which was always the missing component. And so it's given us more leverage in the discussions we have with participants. It's given us more flexibility to focus on deal flow and underwriting and growing the business. But that took five years of of raising early little kernels of of capital and then piecing deals together. And our our loan tape at this point, basically the the summary of all of our transactions, stretches into the several hundreds. It's just close to 300 deals. And so it took that track record and that that level of back backlog to really score a bigger investor uh, like, like Accord. And now that has that has leveraged us into some bigger discussions with some venture debt firms that, that want to provide us uh, even even more capital. So it took, took years and it sort of took uh, growing a very thick skin on, on hearing no many times before we heard yes. That's awesome. So you know, in the beginning, you mentioned you worked with family and friends as some of your initial investors. What were those conversations like? You know, it's, I know it can be kind of an awkward conversation to hit up an old buddy for money, but it's not like you were just borrowing for, for the fun of it. It was to try to build a business and you know, hopefully give a return. So what were those conversations like? Fortunately, both myself as well as several of my partners, our families are in finance or in, in the financial businesses back east in New York and in Connecticut and had a sense for, okay, we're, we're sort of betting on these managers, right? The, the idea is an idea, but it's likely to evolve. And since they had a, a background in finance, they could understand what it was we were attempting to build. Even when I sort of look back at that first year, the concept was fairly narrow. Like the, the addressable market we were addressing was not as large even to a fraction of what we address today. And so I think it, it was a challenging conversation, especially because I, I was 24, 25 years old and we needed to raise, you know, like I said, half a million to a million dollars to really get the, the, the company in motion. And there were certainly decisions made early days in terms of how we built out our tech. You know, we thought we were going to be more of a fintech play, less of a the way we look at ourselves now, which is we're a finance company that is enabled by tech. We are not a fintech company. And I think early days we were figuring that out. And so it also added a different level of pressure, I think, taking on capital from arm's length distance relationships versus you bring on cash from someone who's who's running a fund or a family office. That's very different, right? Obviously, they have loan loss provisions and, and, and their mandates are so different. But when you're raising money from family and friends, there's a personal element to it that you want to make sure things go right. And I think early days of the business, we wanted to make sure, you know, obviously we had to grow the, the presence, we had to grow the brand, but it's always in the back of your mind that this money has meaning in a larger way than raising, let's just call it institutional capital would have. So they weren't insanely challenging discussions because we weren't trying to raise $10 million. Uh, it, that was the kernel of the idea at that time. And we were fortunate enough to be able to piece some cash together and then along the way, raise more traditional and institutional level cash. And to, 
uh, and we were even more fortunate to, to be able to pay all those those early investors back all, all the premiums that, uh, that they had signed up for. Oh, that's awesome. You hear so many stories about lending money to family and friends that it doesn't work out. It's fun to hear a story where they got paid back and got that profit out. I think the the most fun and probably the most challenging component is that this is a very, very fragmented market. And by by that, I mean, there is no barrier to entry. You know, it's not, it's not as if you have to take some tests or pass some exam to enter the media space. So what that ends up creating is this environment with relationships and, and personalities of all types, which, again, is, is a blessing and it's also a curse. It's a great thing in the sense that this industry is still very much the Wild West for, again, better or worse. What is challenging about that is there are early mistakes we made when we look back at some early transactions we had done where our relationships in certain aspects of the industry weren't deep enough for us to make those calls. But we had to make them anyway, and we made them, and we ended up on the wrong side of a few trades. When that happened, I think, obviously, going through adversity definitely strengthened the team. It definitely brought us closer together, and it certainly made our underwriting standards and our understanding of this marketplace that much stronger. I think it also made me as the leader of the team think and, and look around and say, we really need to have an understanding and a relationship with almost every transaction we do. And that doesn't mean we need to know every person that applies for financing on the bonded website. But really what it came down to is we need to be able to pick up a phone and access any attorney that may be rep- representing a deal, an agency that may be representing a client on that deal, you know, a distributor that may be taking that end product and distributing it. And by having that kind of immediate relationship and connection, it shrinks the world to a level where, yes, you can traditionally underwrite the transaction, but it's not as if this market is relying on FICO scores and tax returns to, 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 to handle the underwriting. It is very relationship-driven. And so I think the fun bit is that we do business with thousands and thousands of people. And the even further fun bit is that the growth is just really starting. You know, the transactions are getting larger. The responsibilities are getting larger. You're taking on more capital. And the opportunity to grow is very much in front of us. I think the challenge of that, again, is navigating you know, in the media business, you'll often hear someone say, is so-and-so real? And I think it's very unique to this industry where you've got folks that are wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt that have $100 million. And then you've got someone who's buttoned up in a suit who's who's hustling and, and who doesn't have uh, what they maybe say they have or what they're representing. And so being able to navigate how to, how to put a transaction together and feel comfortable and confident, it just took time. It took time to learn and it took time to, to really understand the intricacies and nuances of, again, how critical the relationships are in this business. On everything you've learned so far, what is the biggest advice you'd give to someone who's trying to start out building a business like this? Yeah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal a line from uh, Max Levinson, one of, the, one of the founders of PayPal, who's, who's building a, a fintech company of his own. And the, the quote is, is so perfect. And especially sort of now looking back on the last five years, if you're going to start a finance company, you need to have an iron stomach. And I think that's true. I think it's, there are going to be significant setbacks and there are going to be significant challenges, whether those challenges are regulatory, which we have gone through. You know, the state of California, for all of its wonderful attributes, is not the most hospitable place to run a finance company. Uh, there are going to be setbacks 
in terms of losses early on. And in the early days, we weren't sophisticated enough to have things like loan loss provisions built into our P&L and our balance sheet and the way we think about budgeting and, and structuring, and the sophistication that comes with time and with battle wounds, and then also the challenges of raising capital. Being able to have thick enough skin to hear no a hundred times and then hear yes or maybe once, that, that takes a certain uh, level of, of sticking with it and a certain that toughness that, that just comes with time. So to me, again, I'm, I'm, I'm lifting the quote from someone else, but an iron stomach is critical. I, I think you almost become, I wouldn't call it numb to, to, to these realities, but you certainly become much, much better at siloing off mentally and emotionally the stress that comes with you know, running these companies. I think even when I look at my calendar or our closing checklist on deals we have at the moment, I think back to how I how I led this business even two years, three years ago, one or two of these items would have sort of driven me over the edge in terms of stress. And now we've got several dozens of, of these sort of balls in the air at any given time. And again, it, it, it comes from embracing that idea that an iron stomach is, is really the, the most critical piece. Okay, what are your favorite and best tips to help manage that stress when you're when you're feeling the pressure? It's a few things. For me, exercise is massive. And I think most people would probably agree, both myself as, as well as the, the, all of my team members. We all are very dedicated to, you know, we live in Southern California, so it's it's very nice where we can get up at, at 6 a.m. every day and, and go for a three, four mile run, clear your head and listen to a podcast and sort of completely unwind. Now, I think the second bit is just immense scheduling. Everything is very regimented and scheduled out. So it's not as if you can get bogged down in you know, noise. Obviously, we have so many uh, forms of communication from email and Slack and iMessage and phone calls and texts. It's just like constantly we're being barraged with you know, new opportunities or new communication. So really finding ways to just streamline that has been huge. We need to get better and continue always getting better at delegating, having a team around us that we feel is, is invested, you know, thinks like owners of the business at all times, whether that's a lawyer who's helping us close a, a specific transaction, whether it's one of our, our team members closing a deal or negotiating a payoff letter or structuring a, a new financing round, understanding that you should set folks you know, on your team. And again, your team could be your partners. It can be outside counsel, which is so critical in our business to set them on the path to get a deal done and to support them and to really support the process of that and realize there's just way too many things going on within a company once it gets to a certain size to try and control every single aspect of it. And that's okay. And I think if, I think if you can sort of get comfortable with the fact that there are unknowns in, in what you're doing and you just need to find a way to sort of control that chaos both literally as well as mentally, you can overcome it. Well, this is awesome. Thank you for sharing all this. It's been, it's very you know, useful and inspirational. Uh, so if people want to learn more about your businesses, want to connect with you, want to follow you, where should they go? Yeah, the easiest thing is probably just to Google you know, both of the companies, which is Buffalo 8 Productions. And Bondit is Bondit Media Capital. And the website is Bondit, B-O-N-D-I-T dot U-S. And we're always looking for interesting opportunities. I mean, I think pulling lots of these threads over the years has led to a much bigger business. And as I said, the, the initial addressable market was much smaller than what we see now. And so we're, we're interested in other segments of media. We're interested in, in other funds that we can raise that give us different types of competitive advantages that we plan to have part of our focus going forward. So always happy to hear from people. I truly mean it when I say that we've built a, a very big web of, of relationships and opportunities, and uh, we want to keep expanding on that. 
Well, this is awesome. You know, thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on and joining us today. I appreciate it, Eric. Thank you for having me. Well, that is a wrap on this one, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Matt Helderman as much as I did. That is such an interesting business model. He has something totally unique that we've never had on the show before. So it was a lot of fun to chat with Matt about that. Now, if you are new, feel free to go back to episode number one and binge listen all the way back to the beginning. We've been doing this show for over a year and a half. And if you love the show, if you enjoy what it's about, please do take a minute, head to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. You know, tell others about the show who haven't listened yet so they can know what the show's all about. You know, I try to do my best with the intro there, but you know, iTunes limits that to a pretty small chunk of text, but your reviews carry much more weight. People trust you more than me. And that's how new people find the show. It would mean the world to me if you could just take you know, a minute or two if you enjoy this, this show. I don't ask for any money from you, but that would be a huge help. Also, please do support our sponsors. That is what pays to keep the internet open with with this podcast for you to download it's not free to host and uh, that's all i ask you maybe leave a review support a sponsor or shoot me a note eric at personalprofitability.com to let me know what you like what you don't like what i can do better and how i can help you improve your personal finances and entrepreneurs entrepreneurial journey in future episodes of this show so thank you all for sticking around till the end and until next time stay profitable (laughs) 